Maybe some of you have had this experience being in a group of new people, a circle maybe, an orientation, and they ask you to play icebreaker games. Don't worry, I'm not about to ask you to play an icebreaker game. There's one that I have played a few times. It's called Two Truths and a Lie. Has anybody played that game? Yeah. So the idea of that game is that you come up with three things, three facts, except two of those facts about yourself are true, and one is a lie, hopefully a cleverly disguised lie that could be true, right? And then the rest of the people in the circle have to guess which of the three things you said about yourself is not true. I have a standard statement I use when I play that game. So we are actually going to play a little bit of the icebreaker game. I always use this sentence. When I was a little kid, I almost got expelled from preschool. All right, so vote with your voice. Truth or lie? Dang, you guys. It's true, it's true. I, uh, when I was in, in preschool, I uh, had a little incident where I was walking back from the art room to our main room in preschool with a paper mache fish on a string. We were going to hang them up somewhere in the main room. And so I was walking, and it was close to the ground, and Brian, Brian, behind me, <laughs> got mad at me for some reason and decided to stomp on my fish. So I punched him in the stomach. (laughs) Now, I want you to know that's the last fight I was ever in at five years old, okay? All it took was the threat of expulsion from preschool to scare me straight, apparently, for the rest of my life. But I I like to tell that story because it actually usually stumps people, I guess people who don't know me. And I think it, um, it does something that Just like Reverend Ken said last week, he told a story about something written in his high school yearbook. Those stories that are sort of clues as to who we are. When we look back at ourselves as kids, we see these certain characteristics that we carry with us throughout our lives. I like that story because it reminds me that I am a fighter. I like fighters. I identify with fighters. So when I think about our topic for this message series, this month that we'll spend talking about death and endings and loss, I knew that I had to talk to you about something that was going to take a little bit of a different approach than Reverend Ken did. I think what we're talking about this month deserves a contemplative and loving approach. I think that's important for us to find and save ourselves in the midst of endings and loss. But I admit that when I come up against an end or a loss or a death, my first instinct is to fight. That's where I start. When I was in high school, I had a good friend who lost his mother to suicide. No one expected this to happen. He was very angry. That was his first response. And our English teacher a few days after he came back to school, decided to read aloud to us a poem by the poet Dylan Thomas. Some of you might know it. The first line is pretty famous. 
going to read it to you. Do not go gentle into that good night. Old age should burn and rave at close of day. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. The wise men at their end know that dark is right because their words had forked no lightning. They do not go gentle into that good night. Good men, the last wave by, crying how bright their frail deeds might have danced in a green bay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Wild men who caught and sang the sun in flight and learned too late they grieved it on its way. Do not go gentle into that good night. Grave men near death who see with blinding sight blind eyes could blaze like meteors and be gay. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. And you... My father, there on the sad height, curse, bless me now with your fierce tears, I pray. Do not go gentle into that good night. Rage, rage against the dying of the light. Dylan Thomas wrote that poem about his father. And it's an angry poem. I can empathize with that desire to rage and fight against the endings. To get the best possible care for the people we love and for ourselves. To save the relationship that is deteriorating at all costs. To keep the doors of the business that sustains our family income open. These are good, noble things to do, and there is a fierceness to it that I completely understand and identify with. And yet I know, in some cases, it is my job to remember that all of these things we love and fight so hard to preserve will end. One day they will end. One day we will end. All of us. What this message series is about is where we start. We are here this morning, and all of us are here this morning. Then we are still here, and our end has not come. We are at a new beginning. We are at the beginning of a new day, all of us. There's a lot of mixed reviews about how useful anger is in coping with loss. You can read from a lot of different psychologists and a lot of different spiritual teachers a lot of opinions about whether anger is something we should get past or move through or avoid or let go of. Even Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, the uh, kind of patron saint of how to move through grief, she's the famous author of The Five Stages of Grief, she includes anger as one of those stages. And she says there's a reason it's in there. There's a reason I didn't skip it and say it's something that we shouldn't experience. Anger can be harmful. 
like almost any emotion, can become harmful if we misuse it. But she says anger can also be an incredibly important bridge out of the waters of grief. When we are hit with shock and despair and feel like we are drowning, anger can be that lifeline, that solidness, the bridge that we can climb onto just to get somewhere else. A bridge, not to stay there, but a place to move forward from. I have a good friend, Elizabeth. She's a minister. She was here at my ordination. If you were here, you might remember her. She led the laying on of hands prayer at the end of the service. Before Elizabeth was a minister, she actually worked in prisons, just actually like Kathleen talked about last week, if you were here. She led workshops for inmates on nonviolence, workshops for men who were incarcerated, who wanted to learn how to work with violent tendencies and with anger differently. She used a graphic with them. It's right here. This image of the anger iceberg. The anger iceberg is based on the idea that just like an iceberg, there's a piece of what we do that we can see above the surface. There's something above the water that is externalized that we show. But below the waterline, there are all these other things going on. When she worked with prisoners, she actually had another version of this that had four layers. Above the anger was violence. Above the anger was the choice to use that anger in a violent way. And then she had another layer below. There's the violence, the anger. Underneath the anger, there are all of these other emotions. Fear, rejection, frustration, hurt, humiliation. Below that... There are systems that dehumanize us. There are systems that hurt us. There's racism, sexism, classism. There are systems that turn us into a number. The healthcare system sometimes feels that way. The school system sometimes feels that way, depending on what kind of treatment, what kind of education you get. If there's no immediate way for us to express what's below the surface, at least we can express our anger. The anger externalizes what's going on. Now, there are dangers there, but from a psychological perspective, at least when we externalize our anger, we don't turn it inward. We don't ossify these emotions into guilt or shame or lifelong suffering and depression. Externalizing anger is dangerous because it may lead us to hurt others. Internalizing anger, though, is always dangerous because it always leads us to hurt ourselves. And we matter too. The NPR station in Boston, WBUR, has been putting out recordings, podcasts of Modern Love. Some of you might know the column in the New York Times. Modern Love is a reader-submitted column where people will share stories of how love has shown up in their lives in different ways. And they released an old column as a new podcast recently. It was the story of a couple, a young couple. The girl in this couple learned when she was 19 years old that she had a degenerative retinal disease. She learned that she would go blind over the next 10 to 15 years of her life, news that nobody would ever want to get. She was only 19 years old, She was in college, and she met a man 
they started a relationship. After a few months, she realized she was going to need to tell him this truth, this fact about herself, if they were going to be serious, if they were going to be together for a long time. So she told him, and she said, I made it so romantic sounding. She said, losing, she told him, losing my vision is teaching me to really see the world. She says, I want to live these next 10 years seeing and doing more than most people see and do in a lifetime. I want to go blind with a bang, not a whimper. This girl was a fighter, right? It worked. He showed up the next day with her name tattooed on his arm. So romantic. He was all in. They got married and they had two kids. They moved back to Brooklyn because she couldn't drive anymore. She started to depend on him for all the little things that she couldn't do herself. He started to resent her. She started to resent his resentment of her. The romance started to fade away a little bit. She says, one day on my 33rd birthday, I spent an hour in front of a magnifying mirror trying to apply makeup for our big birthday dinner, only to have my husband tell me it looked a little uneven. Her husband gave her a book for her birthday, which she couldn't read. And as they walked to the restaurant, they got into a fight. And he walked away, leaving her stranded on a stoop in Brooklyn, unable to find her way home. Scale of one to ten, how mad would you be at your partner? <laughs> yeah. She was very angry. And she sat there crying until he eventually wandered back. And through tears she said, I need you. He said, I know. And she said, I hate that. And he said, I hate it too. He took her hand and they walked back home. The social worker, Brene Brown, was having a conversation with an Episcopal priest once, she said, about forgiveness. And as they talked about forgiveness, he brought up death. She stopped him and said, what's the connection here? Why are we talking about death all of a sudden? And he said, I've seen it over and over again. In order for us to forgive each other, something has to die. If we want to forgive, we have to let something die. He said, I see this actually very often when I do couples counseling. There was one story he told of a couple who came in whose marriage had been broken by infidelity and deceit, disconnection. But they had come to him because they decided both that they wanted to stay together. And he said, the first thing I told them was that if you want to keep your marriage together, you are going to have to bury this marriage as you knew it. You are going to have to accept that the marriage that you used to have is dead. You have to bury it in the ground and walk away from it. 
That is hard medicine to take. He said, it will never be the same because you will never have this idea again that this person who loves you so much won't hurt you in that way, couldn't hurt you in that way. You will have to let go of that idea. And then you can discover what's here now. Then you can see what might be newly born here. There are no guarantees, but there is life. After the loss and the death, there is life that is here with what remains. There's another poem that's similar to Dylan Thomas's, but it has a slightly different take on the subject of death. It's by Charles Bukowski. It's called A Song with No End. It goes, when Whitman wrote, I sing the body electric, I know what he meant. I know what he wanted. To be completely alive every moment in spite of the inevitable. We can't cheat death, but we can make it work so hard that when it does take us, it will have known a victory just as perfect as ours. We can't cheat death, but we can make it work so hard that when it does take us, it will have known a victory just as perfect as ours. A worthy adversary in the fight. The woman in that modern love story walked home with her husband that day, and something had changed. She decided to call the New York State Commission for the Blind, which she had been afraid and embarrassed to do. They taught her how to use a mobility cane. They gave her adaptive technology like a magnifier that she could use to measure her kids' Tylenol out. They gave her an e-reader with an enlargement feature so she could read the books her husband gave her. Her life looked different. She and her husband decided that they would have a third child, which had been the source, the core of many of their fights. She really resisted this idea because she knew that she would never experience motherhood with that baby as she had with her first two children, and not in some superficial way. She would never be able to see her child's face. She would never know what his smile looked like. If she had a third baby, she'd never know the expression that his mouth and his eyes made when he was struck with childlike wonder. If he became a dancer, she would never be able to appreciate his life's work. If he scored the three-point shot to win the state basketball championship, she'd have to ask what was going on after the cheers. She decided it was worthwhile anyway. We get angry and we rage appropriately at death because these details of our lives are so incredibly precious to us. We love them so much. Anger is the most natural, normal response to a loss like this. And when we feel that anger rising... I think we can learn a lot from what Thich Nhat Hanh has to say about anger. He says, your anger is a kind of potato. Stay with me here. (laughs) 
Your anger is a kind of potato, and you cannot eat a raw potato. Your anger is a kind of potato, and you cannot eat a raw potato. Our anger is natural and nourishing. It's food. But we won't get any sustenance from it if it stays raw. If it stays raw, all we get is toughness and bitterness and broken teeth and moldy new sprouts eventually. But if we give our anger attention and time, warmth, compassion, it can feed us nourish us. If we tend to it, it will soften. And then it can give new life to something else. One of the many psychologists who writes extensively about anger is a man named Leon Seltzer. He writes a lot about the dangers of anger, which we know too well. He writes a lot about how we need to manage it well, to protect ourselves from harm and to protect others from harm. He writes about the need to develop our self-soothing habits that will prevent us from using constant anger as an addictive, maladaptive coping mechanism to stress. But he also insists that an angry reaction is not bad in and of itself. He says, in most circumstances, an angry reaction represents a vital affirmation of self-worth. In any situation where death or loss or hurt leads us to feel powerless or abandoned or rejected or completely unlovable and outside, an angry reaction helps us maintain our feelings of respect and honor and value which, psychologically speaking, he says, can be nothing short of life-saving for us. I think the poet Audre Lorde was trying to say something similar. She says, My anger, when focused with precision, can become a powerful source of energy, serving progress and change in my life. She also said, anger has eaten clefts into my living only when it remained unspoken and useless to anyone. Our anger will come to us. It will. I hope it will not eat us alive, because it can. I hope that we will make delicious buttermilk, garlic, mashed potatoes. (laughs) with that anger. I hope that we will eat up its nourishing effects while we are still here. May our anger be seen. May it be expressed with clarity and care. And may we be willing to see it warmed and softened with time so that it can nourish us as we step out of the waters of grief and back to life. Amen. And may you live in blessing. Let's pray together. Holy rage. God of resistance and pushback. 
God of fire and fuel. May we learn to welcome you. May we learn to see that you are also something that tries to keep us alive, that tries to keep us connected. May we learn to soften to your presence, to not let it control us unconsciously, but to welcome it as a friend, as a fighter trying to protect us to allow this one part of our nature to work alongside our intentions, the wholeness of who we are, to keep us connected to each other and to the source of all that keeps us going. For these prayers and for the prayers of each of these people in this room today, the prayers they carry silently on their hearts, we say amen.